we've probably never had a U.S. president who came into office knowing Latin America as well as Joe Biden does. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I am joined by my co-host, Megan Rutkai. Today, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden was inaugurated into office as the 46th President of the United States. Throughout his campaign, Biden promised to conduct a drastically different foreign policy than his predecessor. We look at what this change could look like in Latin America relating to issues such as the global action on climate change, countering a rising China, and promoting human rights. Joining us today on the podcast to discuss the Biden presidency in Latin America is Brian Winter. Brian Winter is Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly and the Vice President for Policy at America Society Council of the Americas. A best-selling author, analyst, and speaker, Brian has been living and breathing Latin American politics for the past 20 years. Mr. Winter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. We would like to begin by emphasizing the importance of Latin America to U.S. foreign policy. To that end, could you explain to our listeners why the Latin American region is important for U.S. foreign policy, especially in this transition to a new U.S. administration? Well, thanks for the invitation here to um, to the podcast. Well, to begin with, um, you know, we're talking about more than 600 million people who live in our neighborhood, uh, many of whom have direct descendants here in the United States. There are traditional reasons why Latin America is important for U.S. national security, uh, for our economies. You know, they're some of our biggest trading partners. Um, but in addition to those reasons that have been around for a long time, I think that there are two, not exactly new, but but there are two topics that will be increasingly relevant as we transition now to a new administration, to the Biden administration. Um, one of them is climate change. And, it, you know, this is clearly a priority for uh, for Joe Biden, it is one of there are four priorities, uh, four main priorities listed on his campaign transition uh, or his transition team website. And climate change is one of them. And when we think of climate change, uh, you know, we think about the Amazon um, and that will be a huge, I think, a huge subject of, of political debate. And I think some tension uh, between the United States and Brazil. Let's not forget, though, that there are other countries that have the Amazon as part of their territory, including Bolivia, Peru, uh, Colombia, Venezuela as well. And and each of those countries you know, also has issues when it comes to to deforestation. So I, that's that's one issue. And then the other one that is newish is China. Um, you know, China really is making inroads into the region uh, as you know, as a trading partner. If you take Mexico out of Latin America, the rest of the region, what's left, um, has China as its number one trading partner, uh, which is a pretty remarkable shift compared to 20 years ago when I started following the region. So, um, you know, that's going to be part, that's going to be a big consideration for the U.S., for U.S. national security, uh, kind of for the the, the geopolitical uh, you know, competition between Washington and Beijing that we're seeing right now. Some of that's going to play out in Latin America. So that's going to be interesting to watch as well. Yeah. So like you said, on Wednesday, President like Biden will succeed Donald Trump and will inherit the world that was shaped by Trump's foreign policy in the past four years. Uh, to take a kind of step back, what has been President Trump's policy uh, agenda in Latin America 
And where does that leave the incoming president-elect? Uh, so that's a good question. And, you know, you look back at the last four years and look, it's a it's a common lamentation of people in Washington, New York, which is where I'm based, that, that the United States doesn't pay enough attention to Latin America. And you, you hear that all the time. And there's a lot of people have said that over the last four years. If we're honest, people were saying that during the Obama years, during the Bush years, during the Clinton years. It's not new. And, and there's there's reasons for that that I could get into. So I'm not sure that the issue with Trump is so much that he's neglected the region. Um, in some respects, his priorities um, are not or were not that different um, compared to what they will be for Biden. Um, you know, Trump definitely saw China as a threat. Uh, that was a pretty major difference with the Obama administration. Um, and, you know, tried to enlist allies in the region, such as Colombia, Brazil, and others to, to see the U.S. as an alternative for trade and for investment. Um, and, you know, in some cases, as with the 5G auctions, with, uh, with Huawei and Chinese companies explicitly tried to convince Latin American governments to, to not work with China in those areas. There was also trade. <clears throat> Everybody knows that, that Donald Trump made renegotiating or rather re replacing uh, NAFTA, uh, the trade deal between the United States, Mexico and Canada. That was one of his central platforms. Um, certainly, everyone knows that migration was a big issue for Trump, uh, the famous wall. Um, and, you know, the other the other the other thing, though, is that and this this surprised me, frankly, was even though he had this agenda that was aggressive in some ways and, and certainly you know, began his campaign back in 2015 by uh, denigrating uh, Mexican and, um, immigrants and others in a way that was disgusting. Um, the truth is, is that he was relatively popular with governments around Latin America, including the Mexican government, uh, including Andres Manuel, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who people refer to as AMLO. And Everybody came in expecting that AMLO and Trump were not going to get along, and they actually got along pretty well. Uh, Trump had decent relationships with the leaders of Colombia, um, Argentina for a while, with Macri, with Chile. And, of course, he, he has a really strong relationship with Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. So, you know, the panorama is one now where I think it's going to be a very different approach in terms of tone and in case of tactics from President Biden. Um, but I, I don't think the priorities themselves are going to change that much. And I want to dive into you know, Biden's approach you know, in Latin America. You mentioned that he has four main goals for foreign policy towards Latin America on his transition website. I'm wondering, you know, what are each of these goals and what sorts of challenges might the Biden administration face in carrying out these goals? Well, the four main goals are, are for the Biden administration overall. They're, they're not for policy towards Latin America per se. Um, this is this is his overriding priorities, and they include. I may not be able to name them here off the top of my head, um, but it's basically it's getting the economy going, fighting COVID, um, climate change, and then I, I believe there's one related to, to racial justice as well. 
And um, so, you know, on the climate change front, like what, what's he going to do? Well, that's going to involve trying in some way, shape or form to convince President Bolsonaro in particular to stop uh, rising rates of deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon. And those rates right now are at a 12 year high. Um, and, you know, it was very contentious. This sort of blew up on social media and elsewhere in during the summer, the Northern Hemisphere summer of uh, 2019. I think it got a little bit less attention in 2020, in part because the world's focus was on the pandemic. But there's every reason to believe that there's going to be a fight between Biden and Bolsonaro over this Amazon issue. Because Bolsonaro has not only been hesitant to try to control the problem, um, but he has also denied the problem exists, uh, casting doubt on data, the government's own data, showing that deforestation is at these 12-year highs. I don't think those conversations are going to be very productive. And I think the incoming people who are you know, going to be officials for a Biden administration, they know that Bolsonaro is unlikely to be a strong partner on this. Uh, and I'm, I'm, that's a euphemism, okay? I mean, let me, let me rephrase that in a less Diplo-speak way. Um, that's, that's going to be a difficult relationship. Uh, Bolsonaro is going to lash out and talk about Brazil's sovereignty and how you know, the U.S. shouldn't interfere and so on and so forth. So then the challenge becomes, how do you find ways, if you're the U.S. government, to try to influence uh, a positive outcome? How do, you, how do you find ways to um, you know, bring deforestation down? And I, I think they'll try to do that by uh, working uh, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly with state and municipal governments. Uh, where there are leaders, or, you know, governors and mayors who have a more um, science-based view of what's happening, a more reality-based view of what's happening. And, um, you know, I think through, through businesses as well, by kind of continuing the work of, of working with businesses that understand that you just can't have these high, these high rates of deforestation at a time when, when our planet's in danger. And if we look to you know, potentially compare the Trump administration's you know, foreign policy towards Latin America and what Biden is expected to do in Latin America, which goals do you think Biden will sort of you know, carry over from the Trump administration? Which goals or policies might he continue in the same direction with? And you know, where might Biden diverge from you know, what President Trump has been doing? Well, look, uh, migration will be a front and center issue for the Biden administration. And um, especially if, as many people believe will happen, if you see a, a surge in people coming up from uh, Central America and particularly the countries of the Northern Triangle, which is, you know, that's Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, as well as Southern Mexico. And um you know, that could actually be one of the first major foreign policy crises in the Biden administration. And, you know, that 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 doesn't change. And part of that will be driven by events on the ground. I mean, Central America and those northern triangle countries continue to have just very tough conditions uh, for security, uh, economic growth, the pandemic. Um, also, there were those two hurricanes that came through late last year. 
And then also, you know, part of this is there are people on the ground there who believe that now with Donald Trump gone, uh, that it'll be easier to get into the United States. And so that's going to drive some migration north as well. And, you know, even though Trump will no longer be president, we'll still have, you know, there will still be border enforcement in the United States. And, you know, a, a big tide of people coming up poses challenges. So um, that's 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 one thing. That's one area that that won't change. I'm also interested in how the president-elect will diverge from Obama before, you know, he became the president-elect. He played an important role in the foreign carrying foreign policy as vice president of the Obama administration. How do you expect that President Biden's foreign policy for Latin America to be different from President Obama's, both in terms of goals and conditions in the region? Well, we've probably never had a U.S. president who came into office knowing Latin America as well as Joe Biden does. Uh, he traveled 16 times to the region while he was vice president. And the reason he did that was because Obama kind of designated him unofficially as his point person on Latin America. And, you know, that was partly because Biden had had some experience in the region while he was a senator for so long. Um, and it was partly because, frankly, there's something about Joe Biden's personality that just works really well in Latin America. He's just, you know, people people like him, people understand him, he understands them, uh, and he's been able to get things done. And so, you know, that he comes to the region with a lot of familiarity and certainly, uh, you know, he knows it better here in 2021 than, than Barack Obama did back in 2009. I think the biggest difference in um, you know policy under the Obama years versus policy now is going to be driven by the fact that Latin America is in a much tougher place right now uh, than it was back then. It uh, not only has been ground zero, sadly, for the global pandemic. Um, late last year, at one point, it accounted for 33% of the world's confirmed deaths from COVID-19 even though Latin America only has 8% of the world's population. Um, and its economies have also been hit harder than anywhere else, except for maybe the Eurozone. So that's, that's driving all kinds of political and economic problems in the region right now. Unemployment's way up. That obviously can impact things like, um, like immigration. Um, but it also merits pointing out that things were already bad. Uh, even on the eve of the pandemic. During the 2010s, Latin America's economies grew less than any other region in the world. And you know some of that's cyclical. Latin America has always been a region of ups and downs. And the prior decade of the 2000s, when, you know, during that period when the Obama administration first came into office, was a great period for Latin America. So it's not that, you know, it's not that the region has is incapable of growing. It's just it, it was having a, a pretty rough patch in the 2010s and and you know now it's it's facing the potential for a second lost decade it needs uh, investment it needs better policies needs better politics and you know those some of those things the united states can't do much about but there are areas where you know you can engage 
and um, and hopefully try to make conditions there on the ground for people a little bit better. And what types of policies do you think you know any American administration could pursue to you know, potentially improve the situation in Latin America to the extent that you know U.S. administration could do so? Well, so I, I'm going to name sort of a, a, a soft power thing here to start. Um, it's a little bit maybe maybe this is controversial. Is sitting here in the year 2021? I don't know, but um, you know, I think that having a less dysfunctional government in Washington actually helps. And I, I say that with all kinds of asterisks, right? Um, you know, there were certainly over the decades, the United States has uh, sponsored and contributed to some really dark chapters of history in Latin America. So I, I, I'm not one who will tell you that, you know, the United States needs to be a role model um, because we're not really seen that way by a lot of people. Um, but I think it can also be true that um, that some people do look to Washington, um, or maybe a better way of saying it is that what's happening in Washington can set the tone. And to cite a very specific example, I, I am convinced, as somebody who spends most of my workday studying Brazil, um, I'm convinced that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was what paved the election for Jair Bolsonaro in 2018. Uh, it, it legitimized a certain, let's say, brand of uh, conservative politics that was popular amongst evangelical Christians here in the United States. And there's a big evangelical community in Brazil as well. And I, I really do believe that that had Trump lost, um, Bolsonaro never would have become president. And, you know, there are other politicians in the region that you see sort of imitating the behavior that they see in Washington. So if Okay, and it's an if. If we're able to kind of restore, um, you know, a government and kind of a democratic culture more consistent with what the United States had in years prior, uh, I, I do think that has a positive effect on kind of the political climate in Latin America. I don't want to overstate it, but I, I think it matters. And then, in addition to that, um, you know, I, I, I think there are things on. The economic front, uh, trade, uh, especially in some of these more troubled countries in Central America, there are kind of these government-to-government conversations that you can have to, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, try to do something about uh, whether it's creeping authoritarianism by some of these leaders like Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, uh, or you know, corruption and sort of criminal behavior in some other places. Um, you know, those are areas where the United States can make a difference. It's, it's not going to be aid um, in most cases. Uh, there's some chance that there might be some sort of aid for those Northern Triangle countries, but that's it. We don't really engage with the region that way anymore. And it's probably not really going to be trade either, right? I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to. I don't think a Biden administration is going to go, especially during this period where you know all the economies in the world, including our own, are under such duress. I don't think we're going to go charging into a lot of these places um, and, you know, trying to grow the trade relationship, even though we probably should. Uh, the, the the politics for that just aren't there right now. And what sorts of policies do you think that some Latin American countries, you know, and it's hard to generalize, you know, all the Latin American countries, they each have their own interests. 
But, you know, if we can in general, you know, what sorts of policies do you think many Latin American countries, governments, you know, are hoping for from the Biden administration? Hmm. Well, you know, you're asking me that on a on a weird day, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, the truthful answer to that question is some of these countries really fear what a Biden administration will bring because they got accustomed to Donald Trump kind of leaving them alone. Um, you know, Trump had a very nationalistic uh, view. Uh, America first, right? And he kind of expected other countries to behave the same way and was very transactional in terms of his dealings with, say, the Mexican government. And that led to a scenario where even though like there were cases where, you know, Trump was leaning really hard on Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, to, to you know, primarily to provide more security along Mexico's southern border so that these caravans and other groups of migrants from the Northern Triangle wouldn't make it north to places like Texas and Arizona. Um, I guess you could say that the Mexican government always felt like they understood what Trump wanted. And again, I don't really agree with this line of thinking personally, but they they thought that you know they they would be left to their own devices, that 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 Trump would understand that, you know, Mexico is Mexico and the United States is the United States, and we're not going to really tell each other what to do. And that's not how the United States is going to roll <laughs> um, with Joe Biden. You're going to see a return to, you know, issues uh, such as uh, climate change is a good example. Anti-corruption uh, initiatives also are an emphasis on, you know, kind of clean government uh, and clean business as well, um, as being U S priorities. And a lot of governments, including the Mexican president, who's already kind of doing some things to show that he is ready to fight Biden. Um, you can tell it's obvious that they, they're not, they're not super, super excited about that return to a, you know, an approach where multilateral bodies like the UN or the, um, Gosh, what's another? Or the the IMF or or others are kind of have that that increased prominence again. And a question that I'm particularly interested in, and maybe this is partly related to what we've just discussed, is you know China's growing influence in the region. Um, how do you expect the Biden administration to respond to this growing Chinese influence in the region, whether that's economic and or political? And do you think that the Biden administration will seek to counter this influence? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely going to seek to counter it. And I think, you know, this is another huge change between the Biden administration and the Obama administration is that in the last four years, the establishment of the Democratic Party has really evolved in its thinking about China in the world. I'm not just talking about Latin America. I'm talking about you know, how to think about China generally. And, and they've become much more convinced, generally speaking, that Beijing represents a threat um, to U.S. interests and should be kind of actively uh, pushed back against in uh, throughout the world, including in Latin America. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't 
I think that'll sound different than it did during the Trump years, because I mean, that was quite close to Trump's uh, opinion, too. I don't think it necessarily means that there will be a, a hostile relationship with Beijing. But, you know, there, there, there will definitely be a continued push to uh, on very specific issues like like 5G and Huawei to try to keep Chinese companies out uh, to try to make, you know, do the best that the United States can to um, make sure that there are U.S. alternatives. But it's but it's difficult, right? Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, I can tell you as somebody who you know, talks to Latin American politicians all the time that they are terrified of the possibility that they're going to have to really make a choice between Washington and Beijing. Because while it's true that you know they're more likely, much more likely to um, you know take their vacations in the United States to have their banking relationships in the United States, to send their kids to school in the United States. Um, look, Brazil sent three times as many exports to China in 2020 as they did to the United States. Uh, China is the number one trading partner for, uh, for Chile, for Uruguay, and a couple other countries as well. And, you know, they, they really, they really, really don't want to have to choose. And, and they, they may not have to. Uh, they're, they're, you know, you can still, a country like Argentina can still sell wheat to China, for example, um, you know, and, and, and not necessarily have China be a, a, a quote unquote ally. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I, I, I that that'll be an interesting to watch, an interesting one to watch. And we, we don't know exactly yet how how the Biden administration is gonna gonna try to handle uh, China's ambitions. And the reason, because I, I can also tell you, having seen this with my own eyes, that having a U.S. official stand up in front of a room of government people from you know all over Latin America and kind of wag their finger and tell them why Beijing is bad. Uh, that, that doesn't work either. And so, you know, what do you think, if anything, would work? What, you know, could or should the Biden administration try to counter, you know, China's influence in the region, you know, if that's what he wants to do? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's, it's, it's a fair question. And the, re the reason I'm, I'm tripping up over a, a little bit over the question is I, I'm not sure how much can really be driven from the governmental level. Um, you know, from from Washington, you can you can talk about the reality. Meaning, oh, here's one um, data point that I hear people from DC point out. They say, "Well, it is true that that China, you know, does trade a lot with Latin American countries, but the U.S. provides uh, six or seven times more investment." In any given year, and by the U.S., I, I mean kind of mainly companies from the United States, certainly not the U.S. government. Um, that's interesting. Uh, most people don't know that. Um, you know, there's sort of the the explanation of why having a, a company like Huawei as part of these telecommunication networks, why why that might be bad over time. But you know, at the end of the day, I think you know. I, I don't see a reality where countries like Peru or Chile are going to 
stop selling copper or 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 try to sell less copper to China. And and that's not really what the US is asking for anyway. What they're worried about is you know sensitive sectors like um like telecoms, like uh you know some of these bases uh like the one that China opened up the science base in southern Argentina, um Chinese acquisitions of ports uh and sort of other strategic assets. Those are the ones that make Washington really nervous. Um, and, and we'll see, uh, you know, it's, it's like any sort of competition among powers. You, you, you can't just expect, you can't just sort of wag your finger at somebody and, and tell them not to choose the other party. You have to, you have to do things on your own to, to make yourself more attractive. And in an economy like ours, where, you know, we can't, again, we can't order our companies to go invest someplace. We also can't, you know, be super generous in terms of, uh, like I mentioned, aid or trade or any, you know, financing or any of these other areas. Um, it's, you know, it, it makes for a difficult competition. I want to shift gears into a different uh, policy arena. Human rights is expected to have uh, a greater role in Biden administration's foreign policy. How will this renewed emphasis on human rights affect the president's strategy and relations in the region, especially with regards to countries like Venezuela or Cuba? Yeah, it's a good question, too. I mean, look, the Venezuela topic is one where at this stage, frankly, nobody knows quite what to do. Um, there was it seemed at the beginning of 2019 when you had Juan Guaido become the uh, the interim president, who was then recognized by uh, not only the United States, but but most governments around Latin America, as well as the European Union, as well as Justin Trudeau's Canada. I mean, everybody kind of got on board that train uh, and it didn't it didn't work out. It did not result in regime change. And you know, here we are uh, nearly two years later. And, and according to some people, uh, Nicolas Maduro is as powerful and secure in power as as he's ever been. Um, so, and by virtue of having recognized uh, Guaido, you, you sort of, you know, not so much the United States, because the United States didn't really have any levers on the ground in Venezuela anymore anyway. But, you know, some of these other countries like, like Brazil... Uh, that, that recognized Guaido now lo- no longer have leverage on the ground in, in Caracas. They've sort of lost the opportunity to have people on the ground who are who are having those conversations. Um, and you know, Cuba is kind of a similar situation. Uh, Cuba was a country where we saw a very dramatic opening by the United States in the final years of Barack Obama's uh, government, and then we saw Donald Trump roll some of that back. There is an expectation that now uh, Biden will roll back the rollback, if you will, and try to go back to some of the the kind of more liberalized uh, investment and travel and kind of other things that we saw at the very end of the Obama administration. But politically, that's not an easy thing to do for two reasons. One, um, you know, we saw the strength of this uh, I suppose you could say Latin American. Uh, descended or Latin American immigrant uh, community in South Florida, 
in this election that we just had here, not just the Cubans, um, but also people who, you know, kind of jumped on board the MAGA train um, because they believed that Trump was strong against socialists and strong against communists. And that appealed to them because of, you know, things going on in their own country. I'm talking about Colombians, uh, Venezuelans, um, Brazilians in some cases. Uh, and so, you know, that is a really big group of voters. Uh, and I've heard some people, I've heard two different sort of mm, schools of thought on this. One that just sort of shrugs and says, well, you know what, guess what? Won by a lot of electoral votes uh, without Florida. And so maybe you just kind of write that, maybe you just write that group off. Um, I really have heard people say that. Uh you know, and by write off, I don't mean not try to get them uh, to vote for you. What I mean is, you know, maybe you do what you want to do on Cuba policy, for example, and not worry all the time so much about what not only the Cuban Americans, but the Colombian Americans in uh, Doral, you know, in, in Miami um, are going to are going to do. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, the, the other, the, the other real trouble spots, um, you know, Colombia is an interesting story, uh, a lot of progress on security over the years in Colombia, uh, but, you know, a place where that you still see too many homicides involving these social leaders, uh, people who are politically involved in one way or another still die at really alarming rates. I, I know that is a subject of interest for the incoming government. And then, uh, and then Brazil. You know, Brazil is a place where um, you know, police violence is is very high and rising. Um, some people believe that that's driven by the president's rhetoric. And so, you know, that's another one where the, I think the Biden folks are going to need to decide how and in what way they want to pick a fight. So would you say, on balance, the last four years you know, under the Trump, a Trump presidency, human rights uh, in Latin America has gotten worse because of, you know, the U.S. position, or at least partly been affected by the Trump administration's kind of uh, laxer approach to human rights in the region? There have been intervals over the years where when you have a U.S. government that talks a lot about human rights, where they've made a positive difference. And you know, people always talk about the Carter years uh, back in the late 70s when, um, you know, Carter made human rights a central part of his foreign policy, uh, particularly in Latin America. And people in places like Argentina believed years later that the catastrophe there during the dictatorship years would have been even worse had it not been for that that strong influence coming out of Washington. So I think, you know, history suggests that when a uh, government really puts human rights front and center, um, it can it can improve the climate in some of these places. Is that still true in 2021? Uh, is Biden willing to, or is his government willing to make human rights a a main component of U.S. policy? I don't. No, I don't. I don't know to what extent that's true. Um, you know, I think that you'll see you'll see pressure certainly coming out of some places on on Capitol Hill. I think that for some Democrats, I think it's a a, a big issue, um, including for you know people like Gregory Meeks, the 
incoming head of the the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I, I think you will hear more about it uh, coming out of D.C., uh, especially in Brazil, Colombia, uh, maybe Mexico, maybe the Northern Triangle as well. But I'm not sure how much difference it's going to make because, you know, we are, and again, partly because of the kind of the global political culture of the last four years, we're, we're in a moment where um, countries kind of think they should be left alone and not be worried so much about international pressure on things, whether it's the environment or, in this case, human rights. And, you know, but we'll see. I, I think like so much else, it depends on the tone that gets set by Biden himself and by his top officials when they come in. We, we just don't know all the answers on that yet. And, you know, I agree so much depends on, you know, exactly which approach President Biden will take and what the conditions on the ground are. And I'm wondering, you know, of all the policy goals we've discussed thus far, including, you know, climate change, human rights, um, China's expanding influence and more, which goals do you think the Biden administration is most likely to achieve um, in this term? Ah, good question. Not to prioritize necessarily, but to achieve. Where can they where can they have success? That's what you're asking? Yes, exactly. Ooh, if I had a crystal ball. It's a tough one. <laughs> you know? I mean I, I I because in part because it's so hard right now in so many ways to see past the current emergency, isn't it? I mean, we have this dynamic here in the United States as well. It's true on the ground where virtually every country in the hemisphere is dealing with emergencies that are in some ways unprecedented because of, um, because of the pandemic and all the related economic damage. I think, you know, I think the goal, if, if we back up a little bit, we think about like Barack Obama had a great, um, a great phrase at one point. He said, you know, all of us have to realize that we're just, we're just going to be one sentence in the history books. And so we have to, we have to get that one sentence right. And so for Barack Obama, it was about, you know, the importance of him being uh, not only the importance of him being the first uh, African-American president in our history, but also about recovery from the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. Like, in a sentence, I mean, that's my personal view. If you had to boil it down to one sentence, like he, he, he shepherded us out of that period. And so, you know, Biden's in some ways, the challenge facing him is almost more complicated because the recession is worse than it was back in 08 and 09. Um, and we have this huge gaping hole uh, in our democratic institutions now because of everything that's happened here in the United States over the last um, couple of weeks and months since November 3rd. And, and you know the institutional decay that we saw because of four years of Donald Trump. And so, um, so now turning to the, the question of like, what can they achieve in Latin America? I think the challenges are the same. And, you know, very polarized societies, deeply wounded economies. And, you know, I think all our countries are going to have to work together to restore a degree of normalcy to our politics and to our economies. 
And um, I know that that's not like, I know that that's not like the, the policy, maybe may not have been the policy response that you were looking for, but you know, everything kind of flows from that. Like, can you put the rules based world back together again? Can you, can you put us back on a path where institutions are getting stronger instead of weaker and economies are growing instead of shrinking? And, you know, that's the challenge here in the United States, but it, I think it's, in some respects, it's even more of a challenge in Latin America because the region had been undergoing such a tough moment, even for the decade prior to the pandemic itself. I think that's such an interesting parallel and, you know, potentially very helpful for, you know, guiding our view of the future. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.